Hi, this is Alyssa McNamara-Reed, and I will be your host for the next two hours. Allow me to introduce myself. I am a certified financial planner practitioner and an investment advisor. I am co-owner of McNamara Financial Services, Inc. in Marshfield, Massachusetts. McNamara Financial is a federally registered investment advisor, and by my definition anyway, is a true family business. We work with clients like you every day, regular people that need help making sound financial decisions or people that want one less thing to worry about. I work with clients for a fee based on assets that I manage or an hourly or flat fee for creating financial plans. I am not compensated via commissions unless I have the pleasure of helping someone with their insurance needs. There are some things worth paying for, and perhaps a lifetime of financial security is one of them. I, of course, cannot guarantee that working with me will ensure a secure financial future. McNamara on Money has been a call-in talk radio show since 1990. I love hearing from listeners, and there truly are no dumb questions. In fact, I like the simple questions, because everyone should have the answer to those. Just don't call me asking for the next hot investment or which market is going to outperform this year. Number one, that's not the nature of this show. And number two, I have no idea. Any advice I give to a caller is meant to be generic in nature and should be verified with his or her own financial professionals. You will hear about a variety of topics on this show that relate to investments and personal finance. We try to cover topics that people can relate to regardless of their net worth or financial situation. And of course, we try to keep it interesting. I would crunch numbers for two hours or spreadsheet cash flows because I'm a total math nerd, but that wouldn't much make for good radio. Instead, I choose to educate people on topics surrounding big financial events in life, like marriage and divorce, kids in college, death of a loved one, career changes, and of course, retirement. I once heard that it is a smart man that knows what he doesn't know. I'm sure it was my dad that said that, and I'm also sure that it applies to women. That is why I invite guests onto my show that have expertise in different areas also related to personal finance. I feel it's important to note that the opinions of these professionals are not necessarily the opinions of McNamara Financial or any of its advisors. As long as we are on the subject of disclosure, I should note that while we may discuss investments and or markets on this show that past performance is not indicative of future results. Thanks for tuning in. You're listening to McNamara on Money. I'm Alyssa McNamara-Reed talking this morning about how much college can you afford. We're talking numbers today. It's very fun. Joined by uh, my business partner and my husband, Kirk Reed. And we are right before the break, we were, we started getting into the, the EFC calculator, the expected family contribution. Those of you that have, uh, I guess, uh, senior, juniors and seniors and, and kids that are through school or in, in college um, are familiar with that most likely, but but we are playing around with uh, some scenarios and, you know, I think the point I wanted to make was that there is a disconnect, in my opinion, for many people. I think it's like the stark reality of what what that calculator tells me I can, I guess I'll put in quotes, afford or I'm expected to pay for my student for college is just for many people just baffling. And because, because you know, you look at that number and people are kind of like trying to find it in their budget and it's not there. <laughs> so, so well, just go ahead. And I think, and I think the other thing that we'll, that we'll talk about is a little bit is how that calculation is done mm. as, and as far as, you know, I think we're going to maybe change some variables, right. And to show, mm-hmm. You know, by switching around some assets or income, how that affects the expected family contribution. Absolutely, and I, yeah. And I don't think um, so. I was just—I know I, I pulled up one of those charts. Like I know you have um, about you know the different ways that they look at that. You know, so when the when the when you're doing the FAFSA calculation. Uh, so I just kind of want to go over those numbers real quick, so people kind of understand okay. what they are. Yeah, uh, and then we can talk about how the 
the changes in them can affect the, you know, the bottom line. So student assets and income versus parent mm. assets and income, you know, they have they have certain certain weightings um, that the FAFSA uses when when you know determining that that EFC. And so for a so that anything that a student has, you know, as far as assets or income is weighted much more heavily than than the parent. Um, you know, I guess they figure, you know, the rationale is that, you know, it's the student, it's them that's going to school, you know, so they should, you know, have some skin in the game, I guess, uh, and, and kind of be responsible to some degree for, you know, for paying for it. So, so if, if, a, if the student has income, which is not always the case, but if they do, you know, if they have a part-time job or whatever, they, they consider 50% of that when, when putting together the, the calculation. Yeah. Uh, that's a, you know, that's a huge number. And then if they have assets, so if there if there are if there's money in the in the student's name, the the FAFSA will consider between twenty and twenty five percent of that. Yeah. When when doing the calculation. Yeah. Good good reason for like when parents start saving for their kids. Good reason for them to not put it in their kid's social security number if they think that that will really amount to anything over time. Because yeah. money in the kid's social, that becomes a substantial amount, even 10, 20, you know, of course, upwards of 30,000 or more can can heavily negatively affect the financial aid awards. So, yeah, I have those conversations with people that are starting to tuck a money. Every, every, you know, almost everybody wants to tuck something away for their kids, whether it's Christmas, birthdays, christenings, or just money. And, and you know, it... it if they think it's going to add up to anything, and if they think their student's going to go to college one day, may, might be worth putting in a 529 savings account, which is not in the student's social. So yeah, and, right. that, and that's why we have those conversations right there. Yeah, and one, you know, one of those account types that we often run across is what's called a UTMA uh, or Uniform Transfer to Minors Act. So that's basically, it's an investment account that is controlled by an adult but it is technically owned by the, the minor or the, the, the student in this case. Uh, and so it would be in their social security number and that would be part of these assets that we're talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, I think, you know, people like the UTMAs because they're flexible, they can be used for anything. You know, you, they don't have to just be used for college, you can use them for, for anything. Uh, but if this, you know, if there's still money there when you get to college that, you know, you have to, you know, show that and, yeah. and, and that could you know depending on the dollars if they're small yeah. dollars it, you know, it's not yeah. going to do much but uh but if it's substantial that could you know that could definitely affect this calculation mm-hmm. um you know one, one of the one of the notes that i'm you know you know is that so like if like we talked about 529s you know those don't have to be um counted in this regard because they're not student owned and also you know, like if like maybe a grandparent owns a 529, mm-hmm. you know, for the student's benefit, you know, that does not have to be mentioned or calculated, and and the at least as far as the FAFSA goes, and but but if they if they give them money like in a, in a during a school year, that has to be reported the following year uh, as far as income, and so that's something that needs to be. So sometimes you know we talk about when to do that, right? In the in the in the green in the in the four year if, if we're talking about a four year education you know maybe wait till the end to do that uh, so there are, you know are some timing things there for uh, when it's grandparent owned you're talking about yeah right. use it up at the end otherwise it's income for the student and that's not good yeah right yeah um, so then okay so then going to the parent side so parents asset I'm sorry income for parents 
uh, they consider between 22 and 27 percent. Yeah. Uh, doing the calculation, that, and that's versus 50 percent, you know, for the for the student. Uh, so 22 to 27 percent for the parent, and then when they look at parent assets, uh, it's somewhere it's it's around five percent, between five and five and a half percent is what they consider uh, when when doing the calculation. And then and as we mentioned yeah. before, um, you know, primary residence and uh, retirement savings accounts are not are not considered uh, not you know you can you can subtract those out yeah not on the FAFs, but but i was uh, but i think that individual institutions have, have their own financial aid you know calculations and they might and i think some of them do report equity the, in the home retirement assets yeah so pro, like that's for private the, the, yeah. the cs the profile yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. um yeah. Yeah, so for now, I guess we were just kind of talking about the balance. So, yeah. So I just, yeah, because I want people to kind of understand what those numbers are as far as, you know, what, how does that fact, you know, how, how is, what, what's the calculator doing uh, yeah. at kind of a more detailed level? Yeah. So, so on that note, so if we go back to our example family here, which was mom and dad age 50, one kid going off to school, it's their oldest, but they're a family of five. They make 225,000 between the two of them. They've got a hundred grand in what I'm calling assets outside of retirement. So bank cash and maybe like, I don't know, a stock account or something. And they've got a couple hundred thousand in 529s, which is a parent's asset. So again, in this example, their expected family contribution was almost $56,000 per year which doesn't translate to much aid, right? Likely if the, we entered cost of school 60 grand, they're expected to pay 56,000 of that. And again, I, you know, I want I want to get back to what the point you were just making about these different inputs and change one of these in a second, but before we get there, I just I I, I guess I just wanted to hammer home and and you know, not every many the people that track their expenses will know this, but not everyone will know this because not everyone really tracks their expenses expenses or lives on any sort of budget or expense itemization or anything or a thing like that. There's just a lot of people that are, you know, flying by the seat of their pants and that's okay. That works for a lot of people. No, you know, no judgment, of course. But, you know, I again, I went in and I like put together like a hypothetical budget for a family of five you know, in this area of the world. And I really, really don't think, you know, when you factor in, you know, they're they're likely still carrying a mortgage, you know, property taxes, health insurance, um, unless it's very heavily subsidized by the employer, you know, kids, activities and camps and, and you know, food, you know, food for a family of five is what, like 25,000, $30,000 a year. I mean, when you add all this stuff up, it's not unreasonable, I think, for a family like that to be spending 10,000 bucks a month, it really just adds up. And, 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 that, and if a family making 225 is spending 10 or 11,000 bucks a month, you know, I'm including health insurance and stuff like that that you might not really see as spending because it comes right out of your paycheck. There's not a lot left for you to use to meet that expected contribution of almost $6,000 a month. Because, you know, your after-tax income on 225, again, if you are putting money in 401ks, as hopefully you are, unless you're really ahead of the game at age 50, you know, your take home is probably 12,000 bucks a month. And so you're, you're, you're already spending 10 or 11 probably pretty easily. And, and there's just not, 
it's just not there. So that was like point number one. And anyone that has gone through this exercise, you know, will look at that number and be like, what? I, it, it, I don't have that. It's, you know, it, it, it's not there. And then, you know, and then we're getting creative with, well, yes, this particular person, this theoretical person has, you know, money in 529s. And, and then we're talking about loans and we're talking about equity from the home. And that's, you know, when you start to get creative and solve the problem. But that but going through this exercise, I, I suggest that families, you know, you got a middle schooler, go through this exercise. So you are somewhat aware um, of, of, of what's coming your way in a few years. I mean, it's just the numbers are staggering. So to go back to your point regarding the inputs and, and, and how the different variables in your financial life affect this calculation, which does help schools determine aid packages offered, let, let's, let's play around with some of those variables. So again, this, I can't tell you how many times, you know, I'm talking through with, with someone who's had a baby or whatever, and, or, and, and they want to start saving for college. And, you know, we're talking about, you know, we're fast forwarding and we're talking about the impact of assets on, on financial aid calculations. And they're kind of like, oh, what's the point? You know, what's the point of me saving? It's just going to reduce my award. But, but like I said earlier, it's always better to save and have money <laughs> than not. And yes, it will affect the number, but n perhaps not as much as you think. So again, if we go back to this couple where their EFC is $56,000, that yep, they've got a couple hundred thousand in 529s. If they had nothing in 529s, if I zero that input, they have absolutely nothing earmarked. You know, yes, I still have them as cash in the bank. Um, but if they have absolutely nothing earmarked, for education in terms of 529 money, their expected family contribution, hold on, I zeroed out the wrong thing. I zeroed out the adjusted gross income instead of the college savings. Their expected family contribution goes down, but it's still a huge number. It's still almost $45,000 per year. So yes, that was a swing of 10 or 11,000 for this one particular year. But now this person, they're expected to pay 45,000 a year. We've already established they don't have they probably don't have a lot of cash flow to do that unless they're you know being fairly frugal and really doing a good job living well within their means. And now they're expected to pay 45,000 bucks a year and they have nothing in 529s earmarked for it. Yes, of course this person has some cash in the bank, but that's not going to go very far at 45 a year times 4 times 3 kids. And, and so the numbers are just incredibly staggering. So I go back to it's always better to have saved and have assets at your disposal than not, even if, a negative, if, even if it negatively affects this one number. Um, and, and like, you know, we could change around. <clears throat> I mean, the, the, the biggest variable generally just because like most people have their you know if you're 50 55 and you've got any substantial assets most likely it's the equity in your home or your retirement assets which are both off the table so if that's the case and you're sort of like that average american with you know of this age with wealth and your money is you know in retirement or real or real estate of your primary residence then the other big big variable is income and you know, if you're making between you and your spouse two hundred, three hundred thousand dollars, that's it right there. That is, that is in a huge way driving this number. 
but it's better to have that income than not, right? Like even if I if I take this married couple and if I say, you know, I had one spouse making 150,000 and one spouse making um, 75,000, if we zero out one spouse, so let's say it's now, you know, just the one spouse working making 150,000, right? And then, and yep. okay, so, so now their life is totally different because, because spouse two is no longer bringing home four or 5,000 a month after taxes, which is a huge swing. And now we don't even know if they can, you know, afford their 10 or 11,000. You know, they couldn't afford their 10 to 11,000 a month of spending their expected family contribution. Again, I'm still assuming that they have, I, I, I left that assumption that they have nothing in retirement. Their expected family contribution does go way down. It goes down to 16,000 per year, but, the, but they're out 75 well after taxes probably $50,000 so so that just it would never make sense to not have the income versus having the income of course right so it's kind of ridiculous to think about how do i make this number so low it, they're all terrible re, they're all terrible choices unless you get into again i you know the, the the one example really i can think of in terms of how to like maximize your financial aid in terms of lowering your EFC in my opinion really the only thing that makes sense is if you happen to have a substantial amount of money in non-retirement assets and if you were able to reposition them but of course and, and and by substantial I mean like you should still have an emergency reserves account, right? And, you know, a lot of people should have 30, 50, $80,000 in there, to, you know, depending on things, you should still have that. So if you have like substantial dollars in excess of that, not in retirement accounts and not in your primary residence, then that might be an opportunity, right? If And if you don't need them for college, right? And if you can afford to you know, forego access to them for a period of time and put them in, you know, people use annuities and insurance policies sometimes to do these things. But, but you know, there are trade-offs too. You limit your access to them. There, there can be costs associated with that. So there's just so few circumstances, I think, where it makes sense to, in advance, mess around with these variables because yeah. all because you don't want to lower your income. You don't want to not save for college. You don't want to, you know, tell your kid not to get a part-time job. I mean, it, it's just, yeah. So when yeah. I, you know what I mean? Like I mean, one, other, yeah. Yeah, one, other, one other thing along those lines, I mean, one thing you could do, I mean, not that, not worth, not that we're advocating for this, but, you know, if you, like, as you said, if you had substantial non-retirement assets, you know, you could always put some of that towards your mortgage, perhaps, if yeah. you have one and, yep. you know, because that, that that asset is um, you know not considered at least as far as the FAFSA goes, um, and theoretically you could always you know take that money back out. You know you could do a cash out, you yep. know, refinance down the road if if you needed mm -hmm. to get the money back. You know once 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 you're past college, but but you know as we said, I mean th those assets are only at considered at five percent. You know which is that's not the biggest that's not the biggest factor. Yeah, uh, but. That is that is a potential tool, I suppose. Yeah, I mean the the like I said, the biggest factor, other than again a huge amount in non-retirement assets, the biggest factor is income, and and, and who wants to like intentionally lower that? I mean, if you're making two, three, four, five hundred thousand dollars, that's gonna you're gonna have a huge EFC, and it's a good problem to have.
right? <laughs> First world problem. <laughs> right. But anyway, you know, when I when I do like um, college planning with people, these are the discussions that we're having, and that you know they're all aware of. Well, the you know the FAFSA and the EFC. Many people are aware of these things and how to plan for it, et cetera, et cetera. And it's kind of like, well, there's no good way to plan for that. It's like, it's like the people that say, you know, how do I lower my taxes? Well, there's not a, you know, there's not a lot of good ways to do that other than lower your income, <laughs> put some money in your 401k. You yeah, there's no, the unfortunately, there's no, no real, there's no real magic solution, yeah. um, you know, but yeah, so plan, plan, planning ahead is always our, is always our favorite, uh, uh, mode of attack there. Yeah. Okay. So that was fun. I really enjoyed that. Are there any other variables that you wanted to play around with? We have like four minutes, a couple minutes before the next break. Um, I thought after the break where we have a little bit more time, we could talk about, you know, just strategies and, and, and how do people do this and, you know, and talking about how to do it, you know, borrowing from your home, you know, using an equity line, doing a cash out refi, taking loans, you know, sharing the burden with kids, et cetera. So um, I would kind of wanted to get into detail on that after the break, but are there any other variables we could play around with the expected family contribution? We played around with the amount of 529s. We played around with income. Uh, student, student, uh, student assets. Maybe? Yeah, I guess like, yeah, I guess we could do that. Like if someone had, let's go back to our married couple where they make 225,000 between the two of them. And let's say, let's say they don't have the five t- money in the 529s, but let's say they had, um, 30,000, 40,000 in the kid's name in the bank. Let's say they were just saving in the kid's social in the bank, actually, that would be an interesting one. So, so if it's mom and dad again, both both working, making two twenty five. Let's say they have no five twenty nine money. Their expected family contributions about forty five thousand dollars. Remember when they had five twenty nine money, their contribution was about their EFC was about fifty six thousand. If they have no no assets for uh, for college, again, they still had a hundred grand between bank and investments outside of retirement, but let's say they have, so we're at 44,000 as their EFC. Um, and if let's say a student had done a really good job saving money, mom and dad were saving for them, et cetera. And they had, what did I say? $30,000 in like the bank? 30,000, yeah. Let's just say it was in the bank and it was in their social. And that increases it from 40, I got it, two minute, Tim's giving me a two minute warning. It increases the EFC from 44,000 to 51,000 per year just by having 30 grand in the bank in the student's social. I mean, that's a pretty big swing for a pretty, not that 30,000 is a small amount of money, but in this in this world of you know money going off to college, it's a pretty small amount of money. If that 30,000 was in 529s instead, we're going to lower that 51,000 to in terms of your EFC to 46,000. So I took that 30,000 out of the kids social, pretended it was in a 529 instead, which is a parent, a parental asset, and the EFC went down 5,000 bucks. That's huge for a $30,000 uh chunk of money. Oh, yeah. that was fun. I enjoyed that. I haven't um, played around with so many scenarios. I've, I've run that several times for clients, but I haven't played around with like all the variables uh, so much. That was that was fun. So again, we were playing around with the financial aid calculator. I there's a bunch of them out there. This one I think is pretty user friendly. It's on SavingForCollege.com. 
Um, not a whole lot of inputs. If you're going to play around with this, pull out your most recent tax return. You'll need a couple line items from that, um, including taxes paid and adjusted gross income. And there's some other numbers that you're going to need to know in terms of where your assets are and how much money you make. Okay. I can't believe we talked about that for so long. That was super fun. Um, we're talking about how much college can you can afford. A little bit more on this after the break in terms of strategies. You're listening to McNamara on Money, and we're just taking a quick break. I'm Alyssa McNamara-Reed and Kirk Reed, and we will be right back. Market turbulence can cause panic, and you might be wondering if your investments are allocated properly. I'm Kirk Reed with McNamara Financial in Marshfield. Let me help you understand your investment strategy and ensure that it is suitable for you. Then you can turn off the financial news and move on with your life. And we're back. You're listening to McNamara on Money. I'm Alyssa McNamara-Reed. I'm talking this morning about how much college can you afford. We've talked about all sorts of stuff. We, we did some budgeting for the student. We talked about the EFC, the Expected Family Contribution Calculator, and the um, stark reality that is the number generated by that calculator for many people. And and now we're going to talk about, um, I was thinking we would talk about, I don't know, st- just strategies and, 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 and how to tackle it. I don't mean to be... Um, I don't mean to be a downer. I, you know, college is expensive, and and it is what it is. And I guess you know everybody knows it. And and you know, having said that, many students will and should attend college so that they can, you know, follow their dreams and and find a career and all that. Of course, not everybody has to, but but for many people, they will. And and you know, um, I think the point of the show is to, again, just have perspective and and a lot of you know, 18 to 20 year olds and even a lot of parents might not, you know, know how to translate an amount of debt into um, the impact on life. And I think it's really important for students and with their parents' help to to do that so that they can make a smart choice when it comes to college. And again, it's really hard to do that. It's an emotional thing. I can remember it was emotional all those years ago when I went through it. And, um, and, but, but for a lot of families, it will come down to the numbers and, and many people will make the decision based on affordability and not, and not just emotions. And, and that's probably a good thing. And, um, so, so now it is, you know, okay, so is what it is. And, and if, you know, mom or dad need to, um, go through, you know, if if you are parents that have made the decision to help your students with the cost of college, which again, not every parent will do that or has to do that, of course, personal decision. But if, if you're a parent that wants to and, and can help, then wanted to talk through just some options. And, and, you know, how do you, you know, some clients will ask me like, well, how do you do it? Because uh, I don't mean me, but how do people do it? And, um, you know, because sometimes we'll sit and we'll go through forecasts regarding future cost of college, especially for people that have young kids and, you know, they're all eager to save, of course, and, um, and you know, want to get an early start. You know, generally people know the benefits of saving early, right? We always talk about that, save early, save often, of course. Um, but when you go through and you do these like idealistic calculations in terms of what would I need to save in order to send my kid to private college for four years and I have got three kids 
the, going through those calculations are a little scary. But again, of course, you know, some some parents just decide to there's there's way I guess what I'm where I'm going is there's ways to tackle it number one again save as much as you can as early as you can build those 529 college savings assets in my opinion generally the best way from a tax perspective to save for education and you know the, the more you can get in there over time the the less of a burden of course the cost is be less has to come out of cash flow if you have more assets, right? I, I would think that that's pretty uh, obvious. But how else do you do it, right? So, you know, one thing I talk to, one strategy that I think may, I don't know, maybe it's idealistic, I don't know. But think about all the families who, when they're having their kids, their kids are young, and again, there was a Dunkin' Donuts delivery and I was not consulted here in the studio. Oh my goodness, who do I need to speak to here? <gasps> We've only been on the air for 32 years, 31. Oh my goodness, I'm just teasing. And Tim just, think, Tim's think, just showing me his coffee. Me. Don't Tim's hate me. Tim's showing me his coffee and his donut I, or whatever. I did not show you anything, uh, you just saw it. Don't give me I think, uh, who's the, I think Dave's, Dave's the it, guy, right? Oh, no, yeah, he's out today. So, yeah. <laughs> That's cool, I'll have time. Kirk's doing all the kids stuff this morning after the show, so I'll have plenty of time to go to Dunkin' Donuts after. There you go. Um, oh, I lost my train of thought. Oh, okay. What I was talking, what I was, where I was going is, I think a good um, potential strategy for handling um, the financial—I was going to say burden, but the cost of college. Um, again, if we think about all the families that have one spouse home while the kids are young, um, I guess I'll be sexist. It's often the woman, and and you know if if one spouse takes time off for several years to raise kids. First of all, I think that that is wonderful. I could not have done it from a sanity perspective. Um, I think it's, I think the people that do it are wonderful angels. And when you do, when families do that, they are, I don't know, forced to, or they are living on one income, uh, hopefully sufficient income. And if you can build a life on that income and that's what you're used to and that works for you and hopefully on that income, you can, you know, also save for retirement. You know, hopefully that working spouse is putting money away there at a reasonable pace, 10, 12, 15%, whatever it is. And if you can build a life on that and then when the kids are older, whenever the family decides it's time for spouse number two to go back to work, if they decide that, but I'm just talking through one one good, I think, financial strategy in terms of handling college is for that entire sal second salary, when that second spouse goes back to work, that entire salary, maybe, you know, again, potentially idealistic, you know, who knows what the world, what the, what has been thrown at you in the years and in terms of other financial things, but could that entire after-tax salary just be earmarked for schooling? Right, and if and if let's, I'm just going to be sexist. I'm sorry. I'm going to say let's. It's mom that goes back to work. Let's say the kids are you know middle school now, and 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 the mom goes back to work, and maybe she can make fifty, sixty, seventy thousand per year. The after tax amount of that is going to be I don't know thirty to fifty thousand per year. I'm just throwing out some numbers that are pro hopefully not too 
far off. I guess it depends on if it's full-time or part-time. You know, that that can go a long way in terms of paying for school. Maybe that doesn't go all the way. It depends on how many kids you have and if you're thinking public or private, but that can really, it can just really go a long way in terms of being able to help your kids with the high cost of education. So I think that's or, an awesome strategy. If they, if they, yeah, If they could get a job uh, at a university, uh, that, that would be good too. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's just like not that many, like super local though, right? I mean, yeah, I guess- I Bridgewater, yeah, UMass, Boston, yeah. But yes, right, if we lived in Villanova, Pennsylvania, then that would be a good strategy. Yeah. So I think that is great. And and I know some families that do that or that have have done that or have at least come close to doing that. You know, sometimes, you know, when a family is living on one income, you know, depends on what the income is, but, you know, sometimes it's not, easy and and um, maybe they hadn't been able to save all that much in retirement and, and maybe spouse number twos, maybe a bunch of their income needs to go towards saving for retirement, you know, before paying for education, at least in my opinion. But so maybe it's combination, but, but I think it's, I don't know, something to think about. And it, I think it's for those families that do have an at-home spouse, I think it's a little bit of a, I don't know, a little nugget of hope, I guess, because it, it, you know, it, again, depending on what the income is, you know, maybe spouse, spouse one that's at work is incredibly successful and has, you know, very sufficient assets to save for lots for retirement and lots in 529s and pay down the mortgage and all that stuff. But, but if it's not, I think it's, that's, it's a good plan. Let's talk through, you know, you mentioned earlier using equity in your primary residence, which is of course, incredibly common in order to um, get kids through school. It's very easy to borrow in in a couple of different ways actually for school. I mean, I think probably like, I I think it's pretty common, especially right now while interest rates are really low, really common for people to do cash out refinances for many reasons, but one to to cash out and, and get money out for school. Also historically and still very easy to, you know, get a home equity line. And for many people, right, that have good, you know, decent credit and, and are working. Um, and if you have equity in the home, of course, pretty easy to borrow on an equity line. So I think good strategies, I, I just would say, and we can play around with some numbers. I actually did have a model kind of ready to do this. I'm not sure if we want to go through that. Maybe I'm just burning out after um, walking through so many numbers earlier in the show. And I was up so early today. I'm like burnt out already. If you have models, I think we should use them. Oh yeah, I mean, because my models are always amazing. Yeah, so I, I, the the one the the big component there, like I said, it's very easy right now, and I guess almost always to get equity out of your house to use it for again anything, but prop, but in this example, college. The 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 big discussion there, from my perspective, is not only. Not only, you know, of course, can you afford the payments? Hopefully everybody is doing the calculations in terms of, okay, I'm taking this much in equity. What's the payment? How long does it, you know, if it's an equity line, for example, not only what's the minimum payment, which is very low, but what do I need to pay on this in order to pay it off unless you're planning to sell the house and pay it off that way? Hopefully everyone's going through those calculations in terms of ensuring that they can afford the extra debt. But one step beyond that is what's the impact 
on my ability to retire? What's my goal there? And what's my impact on, what's the impact on that? I mean, and some people kind you know, people approach it in different ways and it's never our business to judge. But, you know, some people will say, I really want to retire at this age. Good morning, sweetie. I really want to retire at this age and tell me how much I can afford to pay f- to help my kids with school. That's one way to approach it. I'm going to retire at 63. This is what I want my life to look like. I love to travel. I'm going to do this. How much can I afford to borrow and still meet that goal? Right? So that's one way to approach it. Another way to approach, and, and, I, and I think the more financially responsible way, I don't mean to sound judgmental, but I do think that's the more financially responsible way. But the other way to approach it is, I'm going to borrow this much because my students are, you know, are going here and there, and this is what it takes to get them through school. I will work as long as I need to, to afford that, right? So that's just another way to approach it. And that's personal preference. And we can solve either of those problems and and answer those questions. Um, But I think that people shouldn't borrow in any capacity, whether it's a home equity line or a cash out refi or just student loans. I don't think you should be borrowing 50, 100, 150, $200,000 without thinking about the impact of it on the rest of your life. Right. And, and, you know, of course there, I can think of, um, I can think of a client that I work with that is on a really good track for retirement. They've got good money tucked away for retirement. They've got very little debt on their primary residence. So they were, you know, they, they, they worked hard to pay that down and, and they were responsible about purchasing a property and they've got good money tucked away for retirement. So they're on a really good track there, but they've got a couple of kids. I forget if middle school or, you know, or something like that ages and, um, don't, haven't haven't saved much in the way of earmarking for education. So we're having these conversations about, okay, you're in this great spot here to retire, you know, maybe even on the earlier side, um, you know, that looks very comfortable. And then they're kind of asking these questions about, okay, well, if, you know, my, my couple of kids want to, Um, go to private school. And if we want to help them, can we borrow, you know, I'm just throwing out numbers, 200, $250,000 from the equity in our property in the way of a mortgage, likely it would be a fixed mortgage if if it was that size. And can we still make retirement work, right? So, um, you know, this particular couple, I, I, as I recall, they, I can't remember the exacts, of course, but they, I don't know if their mortgage was almost gone and so they were going to have some free cash or something like that. Or I think actually this particular, you know, we were kind of playing around with, well, you're on such a good track for retirement. Can we lower what you're contributing to your retirement assets in favor of, you know, paying down some debt or using some of that cash flow for school? And are we still okay that we're not, you know, materially and negatively impacting your ability to retire? Um, so those are really fun scenarios to work through. I mean, we've done a whole show in the not too recent, in the not too distant past about the benefits of front loading your retirement, right? Like working hard early to build big, big, you know, big assets in there so that your account's working for you versus you, you know, trying to pump money in later. And this is a really good example of where that 
works to your benefit in that if you've built, I don't know, you're age 50, you've built, I'm just going to throw out numbers, a million and a half in retirement. And, you know, again, everybody's different. It's not that that's like the perfectly sufficient amount. I'm just throwing out a number. Um, you know, can we reduce or, or for a period, you know, period, maybe not eliminate because you don't want to forego an employer match, but can we substantially reduce the, your contributions? And do we think you'll still be okay come retirement and use this cash flow elsewhere? So really good example of, of where that pays off and relieves some pressure. If you can get a bunch of money into retirement early, Okay, so if you have, you know, 22 year old graduate of college and they're taking their first job, get 10, 10 to 15% in that 401k, build that early, takes the pressure off later. Good example of that. It's, um, you know, yeah, you, don't, you can't, you, you don't want to just kind of, yeah, blindly take on, you know, lots and lots of, you know, student debt, yeah, without knowing how that's going to impact the rest of your life. And, and as you said, some people are, that's a high priority to, you know, they want to pay for their child's education. And so, you know, we, we certainly understand that. Um, and, and we can try to help you figure out how that, how that works, but you know, yeah, we want to, we want to show you how, how that affects the rest of your life. Um, you know, and you know, at least so you know, um, and if you want to try to, you know, have a resolution or, or a solution to, um, you know, how that, how that affects your retirement and how can we make that still work? Uh, even if it, you know, maybe, maybe that means you have to work an extra year or two or whatever it is, but you know, let's, let's do the math and let's figure it out instead, instead of just saying, well, I'm doing it and it is what it is because yeah. you might, you might regret that at some point, um, you know, or have, you know, quote unquote buyer's remorse. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, let's just kind of, let's figure it out. Um, I mean, yeah, everybody loves their kids and this is, this can be a sensitive subject because everybody wants their kids to be happy and go, you know, where they want to go and all that. But, you know, maybe there's more than one place that they could be happy at. And if there's huge differences in the amounts that you would spend, you know, in one way or another, or that they would take on in loans, um, you know, it's just, it might be worth, it is, in my opinion, generally worth working through those scenarios. Um, I had an interesting conversation recently with a younger couple who was having their first or second baby and we were talking through you know just broad you know financial stuff we were we were just having these broad conversations it was the first time I met them and this particular couple had a very reasonable sized mortgage for their age let's call them something like 40 late 30s 40 and um, substantial equity in their property. They put a large down payment um, when they bought this property in a very small mortgage for their age. And they had recently refinanced. So number one, their mortgage is pretty small. And I guess for small, I'm talking, I don't know, 300, 350, you know, something like that, which for your late 30s and, you know, the South Shore is like, pretty good. <laughs> you're doing pretty well there if, if that's only the amount of debt you're carrying on real estate right now. And so, so number one, small amount of debt on their house at a young age. Number two, interest rates uh, on their mortgage, very low. So there's a couple, and there's a couple ways to look at that. Uh, let's just talk through this. We have almost 10 minutes, so I want to talk through this. And we were talking about, you know, saving for college and ways to pay for college. We were basically just having this exact conversation. And 
I started throwing out the idea of how, I think when they refinanced, they refinanced, I can't remember if it was a 20 or a 30, they refinanced to. But we started talking through um, how these people made pretty good money. So there was some ability to do some things of a financial nature there, whether it's savings or paying down debt uh, or both. And I threw out the idea of how kind of easy it would be for them to overpay that mortgage and make a huge difference in terms of how, when it would be paid off. So I think they did, I can't remember if it was a 20 or 30, but like, for example, let's say they did, they have $350,000 of debt. And let's say they did a 30 year mortgage cause they're in their thirties. So they very well could have. And let's say it was like, I don't know if it was like 2.875 that the interest rate was really reasonable. The payment on that was only like 1500 bucks a month, just principal and interest, you know, not, in, not including escrow. So 1500 bucks a month for 12 months for 30 years is $527,000 in payments over 30 years. Of course, well, we know very few people live in their property for 30 years, but to let me prove a point. So we just sort of talked about if you were, so, so number one, if you carry that mortgage for 30 years and you just pay regular principal and interest, you're paying almost $200,000 in interest on a $350,000 debt. So even when interest rates are really low as they are now, uh, interest can really accumulate over time. And of course, I mean, in, yeah. interest is front loaded too. So you're paying almost like a lot of that at the beginning. Um, if you look at an, to be really nerdy, if you look at an amortization schedule to see what part of my principal and interest is principal versus interest, all the interest is at the beginning. It's, it's front loaded and you're paying your principal on the back end. So first of all, just doing those numbers, that's crazy, right? And, and like, okay, ignore the fact that they probably won't be there for 30 years. Um, so I just said, what if you were to pay like $1,000 a month extra on that debt and for them, you know, they, they make pretty good money. So for them, that would be pretty easy. Like they might not even notice all that much. Yeah, might hurt, you know, change things a little bit. But for them, on a $350,000 mortgage at 2.875, and if I had them put $2,500 a month as their payment... Oh crap, hold on, it didn't work. 350,000, sorry, I'm trying to do it on my calculator on the fly here. 350,000 goes to zero. Their payment was 2,500 a month. 2.875 is their interest rate. Oh, you know what it was, 2,500 a month. I need to do that annually. It's $30,000 a year, that's their payment. 2.875 is their interest rate. That bring that brought their uh, cut their term in half. So instead of a thirty-year mortgage, it was a fifteen-year mortgage. So then we were talking about, you know, if, if you were to eliminate that mortgage, and they could probably even pay a little bit more than that. if you were to like really work that mortgage down. By that, you know, they were just having a baby. So by the time that their kids are going off to college, they could be debt-free, and and use that free cash, you know, to help pay for college. Would it pay for a private school tuition? No. 
but but you know it really frees up cash flow and it's just an idea now there's a couple ways to look at that oh we don't have a whole lot of time but i'll just point out when interest rates are low the impact of your overpayment is greater. It's easier to work that debt down when the interest rate's low because you're not like burdened. You know, the interest rate isn't as much of a hurdle when interest rates were five or 6% an overpayment of that thousand bucks would not have been as impactful because there is more interest to be paid, right? So interest rates are low, easier to beat down a debt and, and make it go away more quickly. On the flip side, and we had that same conversation with them. So, so number one, I said, you know, I kind of said them like, wouldn't it be great if you were like, you know, f not even fifty or, or age fifty, and you were mortgage free, you know, and in, in your beautiful property and whatever so short town, and you had all that cash flow for college? Like, wouldn't that feel great? And they're kind of like imagining, like, oh, that's wonderful. I, mathematically speaking. We also had the conversation, like, you know, mathematically speaking anyway, it might not be financially as smart to do that where you could put that $1,000 a month in, for example, a 529 savings account in your market for college. Maybe you're earning 7 or 8 or 9 or 10% instead of paying down a debt at 3%, right? 2.875 was what I used in my example. So, you know, we, we had to have those conversations and, and you know, again, financially, maybe it is better to, to save it and accumulate it. Um, but, but seven, eight, nine, 10% on a thousand bucks a month is a much smaller number than getting rid of, um, interest on a $350,000 mortgage too. So it's not just about the interest rate. It's about the numbers. Um, so super interesting, you know, conversations and for them, it will come down to like what feels good. It just like for a lot of people just like feels good to get rid of that debt. So and, was, there, and, was there a conclusion there or is it still kind of? No, that was just my first conversation with them and, and, yeah. and they're going to come back and we're going to, you know, start doing some real number crunching and some planning and really talk through it a little bit more. But um, they really were attracted to this scenario of let's get rid of that debt. Now, now you have to remember that this, this is a couple who put a... I don't know if it was like a 40 or a 50% down payment on their property. So this was someone who really didn't want to carry a lot of debt to begin with and were very cognizant of that. Um, and they had the means to do it. And, and um, you know, through, through savings and paying down their prior mortgage and through, you know, a good real estate sale. But um, so it, it worked for them. But, um, but interesting stuff to talk through. And I, I enjoyed like kind of talking that out and crunching the numbers in terms of when you go through calculations regarding interest on a mortgage over time, the numbers are just huge. And that was a small mortgage, so, you know, to have 200 grand in interest, you know, again, over a long period of time, you know, 30 years, but... But even on a small mortgage, the numbers can be um, huge. So kind of fun to, numbers but are so fun, aren't they? They're just, it, you know, <sighs> mortgages though, they're just, they're just a tool, right? Yeah. You know, they allow you to, you know, buy the property and live there. And, you know, I don't know. I, I try not to be hyper-focused on what the interest is, you know. I mean, yeah, yes, you have to be aware of what it is and, and there are ways to pay that down. But, you know, I, I don't know. So I'm, I'm not. I'm not as uh, crazy about you know beating down a mortgage. Yeah. Um, different. What does my dad say? Different strokes for different folks, or something like that. Yep. Um, okay. 
So that is it. That's all for us this morning. Thank you for listening. You've been listening to McNamara on Money. I'm Alyssa McNamara Reed. Um, that was my husband and business partner, Kirk Reed. We we're talking about college today. Questions for us? You can email questions at McNamaraonMoney.com. You can check us out at McNamaraFinancial.com and you can find our podcasts if you search the podcast apps, your app for McNamara on Money. Enjoy the weekend, everybody. Stay well. Take care.